For the next hour, you will hear things out of your radio, or you won't hear things, whatever the case may be. And you do not need to adjust any dial. You don't need to change anything. You don't need to turn any volume up or anything down. We're going to listen to the music of John Cage. Okay, that was an excerpt from, I'm not going to play the whole work, but that was a jo- an excerpt from a piece written by John Cage in 1947 called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. If you listen to my other broadcasts, especially the one on Pendereski, you'll realize that this piece was known and people did know about the piece. What John Cage did was he had a pianist come out on stage and sit in front of the piano like he was getting ready to be prepared to play. He had a, some music was on the on the piano, and he he didn't turn any pages or anything like that. He was he was not supposed to make any sounds, but he was supposed to always look like he was getting prepared to play. Of course, he didn't do anything for the duration. At the end of four minutes and thirty three seconds, he stood up and took a bow and walked off stage. Cage has done a number of other interesting things in life. But uh, in fact, he probably will be more known and out of his own mouth when I talk to him, I ask him, and he was more, he thought he would be more remembered for his processes and the way he was thinking and the type of, of systems he used to create works than he would for the actual works. And part of the reason is, is that you never can be sure of the outcome of the work. It's supposed to change every time. Uh, and so consequently, sometimes it'll be good, sometimes it'll be bad. What he was hoping was that the the interesting part of what he was doing, which was his processes, would interest people enough to carry out and do the pieces. In addition, his his pieces also had a kind of, of uh, symbiosis, in a sense, with the times. He was a, a really very popular in the 60s. And that whole free spirit, the whole idea of, of a discovery of uh, Orient or Asian uh, philosophies and Asian cultures and uh, transcendental meditation, that type of things, fit in with what J- uh, what uh, Cage uh, had been doing and was doing. So he kind of, in a sense, became a de facto composer de guerre, as you would say, or de jour, for the uh, free-thinking, uh, 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 Asian-leaning, uh, mystical kind of set people, and they would people quoted John Cage. In fact, uh, I met Rachel Rosenthal uh, back in uh, 1976, and uh, Rachel, the, the doyen of uh, of uh, performance art, was quoting John Cage all the time, and and Cage said this, and Cage said that. So his influence in in the art world uh, by performance art and theater. In, uh, in music, of course, he considered himself primarily a composer. Uh, and, and in philosophy is not to be underestimated. I'll play some Cage pieces uh, while we're going on the piece. But uh, John Cage, the American composer, musicologist, inventor. If we had to find a name for him, we don't know. He wanted to call himself an experimentalist, writer, and he had a number of other identities. It depends. He was, for a brief time, he was taking um, 
mushrooms. He was eating mushrooms, and uh, and he did that for a while. And and I, in fact, I asked him about that, and uh, he, he said he'd written quite extensively about it, but it wasn't that wasn't what interested in him. He just said he he realized one day that he was eating these mushrooms and and without really knowing all about them. And he could have uh, uh, eaten poisons and things like that, of which he thought he was poisoned a couple times. So I don't know that he ate them like, uh, you know, a pound of them or whatever, but he certainly sampled them. Uh, now, that kind of experiment of mind is rare. We have, of course, people that take drugs and things like that experimentally, but they don't seem to translate that over into art. Cage was truly an, an experimental and original thinker, like Ed Garvarez. I mean, he fit right into the American mold of the the kind of outside the the norm uh, exploring new areas and in doing so created his, his own niche in a sense and his own his own set of realities that ex revolve around him. So he was a true Renaissance man. He's a composer and a composer is a guy who writes music, right? But he's best known for four minutes and 33 seconds. He's, he's a composer best known for writing silence. Now, Cage loved that. When I, I, I mentioned that when we talked, uh, when I met him actually at a gallery one time and I talked a, a brief time, and then I met him later at Nicholas Sonimsky's house. But, um, but, his, uh, uh, but he, he thought that was, I said, that's very funny. You're going to be more known for writing nothing than you are for writing what you write. He thought, but he, I've sure obviously thought about that before, but I didn't know. But we're looking at a body of work and a output of a composer who not only created interesting pieces and interesting processes, but he also wrote a lot about it. Like Varese, he wrote uh, copiously about his stuff. He's, got, he's a published author. He has uh, two books uh, that I know of to his credit. Uh, and he has other things that he wrote, plays and, and other things like the list is, is innumerable. I could read it all. It would take the entire hour of things that he created. Cage did write a piece though called Roratorio. And this has become kind of a, a piece symbolizing uh, what Cage did. What it is, it's a, it's, he calls it an Irish circus on Finnegan's Wake. And I'm going to play an excerpt from that now, and then we'll talk about it. This is the grandma. 
This is the album. This is their Lego That's a very brief excerpt of Roratario, an Irish circus on Finnegan's Wake. And it's a complex sounding piece. It's, uh, it's got a lot of different things going on in it, okay? But it's actually very simple if, when you think about it. When you actually put it together and think about it, the, the sounds and everything put together and the, and the structure he used was very complex but it actually turns out to be a very simple thing. It just all happens at the same time. Now, since it's all happening at the same time, it sounds like he wrote every little thing out and added it in and, and did all that. That's not what happened. He had a process for producing this piece. And one of the things that composers have been looking for, as well as names of pieces, they try to find interesting names like interpolation and, and, uh, and ramifications and different heavy names that give the, the music weight that it might or might not have. They've also looked for processes and ways to compose. And this really started, well, earlier, you know, the Renaissance composers and the medieval composers all had systems. And a lot of them were secret systems. I'm going to do a whole show on secret systems in music. It's fascinating. Some of the stuff that, uh, that people came up with to give political messages in a time when they couldn't freely speak anything politically or anything in, in, uh, in opposition to the, to the powers, which was the church at the time. But they had other ways to distill knowledge and pass knowledge on in these secret codes that are put in motets and in, in other pieces. So it's fascinating. So composers have always looked for systems to help them write music. One of the most famous ones that we know in our time is the 12-tone system. Of course, we know the common practice period, the harmonies that we have that came, basically Bach codified that with the, the well-tempered clavier. But, but uh, other people have been working on well-tempered systems also, which is what we have. It means every note is equal distance the part. There's benefits to that, and there's also downsides to it. But our ear is now very accustomed to hearing uh, well-tempered uh, music, music not of mean tone, not adjusted because of the vibrations, the harmonic vibrations of the overtone series, but of equal distance. So you can play a number of different keys and number of things. Now, theoretically, it's all supposed to sound the same. In other words, something in C major should sound the same as something in E major, but it doesn't work out that way. Because of the nature of acoustics and sound, the, the actual keys sound different. And there are people, 
uh, my wife among them, who can listen to a piece in a different key, and she can understand what key that's in by how it sounds to her. So e sounds different than D major. Uh, e flat sounds different than C major. It's it's all works out very strange, but people can hear it, and it it, it is a, a it's a real a real talent that people have, so to speak. So Roratorio. Now, why is it so complex? Well, first of all, it's it's a big work. It's made in four pieces, um, and and it's it's put together by a bunch of different elements. Okay. Now, I'm going to describe what those elements are, and then we'll talk about each one of them. Now, I played an excerpt from Part One. Okay, Part One is uh, it's called part one to line 220 is 24 minutes and 46 seconds now how what does it mean part one to line 220 here is the process that john cage used to compose this piece okay i'm going to read them right from the 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 his writing how the piece is put together it says <clears throat> one John Cage, this could be anybody, but on this recording it's John Cage. John Cage, reading lines from the text, selected so as to form the mesostic. Now a mesostic is a, a way to order an, a vertical word, like uh, he uses James Joyce over and over again, but you can use any word, say the or, or which, any word you want, and then you put words above it, uh, connecting all the lines vertically so that a letter in the word that you use is contained in the mesostic. So let's say we have the mesostic. Um, um, what did I use here? I used uh, randomness. Okay, so I took the, the word randomness. I wrote it vertically down the page, and then I wrote American experimentalist and identities, composer, contemporaries, and influence less his. And I did it again. I did randomness again with different words. And I used all these words from the introduction that I read at the beginning. So incorporation are in used to make meeting the sati society. So a mesostic is the word randomness. And then I took a word out of each letter. And from the letters in the words at the introduction, I found ones that had those same things. And I put them together. So John... Cage is doing that with text taken out of James Joyce built around the mesostic James Joyce. Okay, out of Finnegan's Wake, I'm sorry, around the, the mesostic James Joyce over and over again. So he did it maybe 150, 200 times. Okay, now <clears throat> the actual excerpts from the wake or Finnegan's Wake, were selected by a process that combined arbitrary rules with elements of artistic preference, creating a unique overview of the entire novel. The libretto is not read, straightforwardly, but spoken, it's sung, it's whispered, hissed, shouted, muttered, and mumbled. It's all different types of, of effects that you could do. And he ordered all those different effects of uh, vocal things in a in a in a like a chart and then he would use each one of them as it came up he'd use it once and he wouldn't use it again until they had all cycled through two 
This is the second part of the piece. A barrage of sound effects, all inspired from the text. In other words, if there's a sound or an indication of a sound in Finnegan's Wake, he would put it in the, in the piece or record it and then play it. Many recorded in Ireland and other geographical locations mentioned in the novel. This adds up to literally hundreds of sound effects. Thunder, explosions, breaking glass, birds, bells, all different types of things. Limited to a management amount through random chance operations. The effects were like then keyed into the work at the places where they appeared in the Wake novel itself. So he took the novel, he took the words, put them in a mesostic, the, uh, and use, use those as, as the words that he used, because not every word then would be used in the text. Hissed them, shouted them, screamed them. At the same time, he put in a bunch of sound effects that he gathered up based on sound effects and sounds that were mentioned in the novel or indicated by places in the novel. And then he randomized those, those sounds through chance operations and put them in the piece, made a chart just like the, the Mazosic is a chart, and then put them into the piece and cycled through the, the chart. Okay. Then the third thing, Irish traditional music played at various times, at various intensities. So there's jigs, reels, airs, songs, uh, all different types of dances, and it forms an ambient presence of music drifting in and around like you would be walking around, um, uh, and this is the sounds that you would hear. So if you walked around town, you could very well hear these sounds being going on. If you were walked long enough, you might run into a thunderstorm, that type of thing. That, that's how he composed the piece. This was the system he used. Now, this has bred all kinds of things from, from uh, people repeating his uh, use of a mesostic. I tried it and played around with it. It was kind of fun. But remember, it's a system used to create a piece of music. So that is what Cage is also known for for developing systems. Now, what else did he also champion? He developed something called the prepared piano. Now, this happened, he built it in 1940 when he was up doing as a, playing as an accompanist. He, could, he actually was a very good piano. In fact, let me go back. I'm going to take a little, little back trip here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about his, uh, his life. Okay, uh, jo John Milton Cage, he's a junior, was born on September 5th, 1912. He died uh, August 12th, 1992. Okay. I met him in 87, well, I met him in 86, 88, uh, and 89. He actually broke his arm sometime in there. I don't remember if, whether it was the first or second time I met him, but he had a broken arm when uh, when I met him at the gallery. He was just recovering. Um and then I met him at, uh, as I said, at Nick Slonimsky's, and we got to talk. I didn't know him; he wasn't a personal friend, anything like that. But, but uh, an interesting person to talk to. And you know, when you meet someone like that, you have to be careful because when you, all I had ever done is read about him. I mean, he was like a figure that uh, you know, I had my degree in music, and and the professors I had didn't have much regard for John Cage. They were more still interested in other other people, but they. They didn't have much regard for John Cage or anything he did. Um, could be professional jealousy, who knows. But Cage certainly will be 
in the history books a lot longer than many of my professors. I think one has a chance. Uh, uh, Raleo de la Vega was a professor that I had. I think he he has a chance to really do something significant musically. He has he's writing a lot of works. His stuff is very complex. It's it's people don't know this, but he's he's Cuban born, but. Uh, um, his music is actually very traditional in a, in a funny way, yet it's it's very experimental. He's a, he's a good composer. Uh, so what is Cage known for? Um, all right. So he's born in 1912. You know, World War One is going on. We're not much touched by it here. Europe is destroyed by it. Um, you know, Varez is, is wandering around 1915. I mean, he wouldn't have heard any of that. He was his dad wanted him to be a uh, engineer. And he actually went to theology school for a little while and, and, uh, and that. He was born in Southern California. He's a local boy. So he got the prepared piano going. So let's go on with his biography a little bit. So he died in 1992. Okay. Um, he probably was and will be considered the leading American composer, uh, at least experimentalist, he might actually, uh, over time, like I said, I taught, when I asked Cage this himself, he didn't think he would be remembered for his music per se, but for other things, including his uh, philosophy. But one thing that Cage did <clears throat> that other composers haven't done, Cage was really the first American composer to influence composers out of Europe. Until this time... Americans were considered kind of backwards in many ways uh, artistically. Cage was really the first person who was thinking on a conceptual level that actually was influencing composers in other countries. Now, we hadn't had an, uh, any other composer do that, even Charles Ives. And Charles Ives, um, I'll do a show on him also, terrific composer, wrote some incredibly interesting music but he his, the most of his stuff didn't get played, and uh, he was pretty much unknown. I think he only actually saw one or two of his pieces performed in his life. He was a church organist, and he, and he performed some of his own organ works and things like that, but he he didn't do stage any of his big pieces. I, I, I don't think he even saw any of his symphonies, maybe one of them, an excerpt or something like that. So Cage was the first American composer to really to go and influence People and I talked on the Penderecki show how uh, when uh, when Penderecki met uh, John Cage uh, and knew about the uh, four minutes and thirty three seconds he, he wrote uh, eight minutes and thirty seven seconds which became the Threnody for the victims of Hiroshima in kind of in counterpoint to the uh, to the to the silence piece he wrote a, a, a piece where every single second is filled with sound and even to the point of of every single iota that the ear could take so cage turned basically all the europe coming to america we're being like the like in the back seat and the and the, and the second redheaded cousin or whatever he now were now considered the great thinkers and the great innovators and all because of john cage the dichotomy of this man is incredible he's a he's a composer of music but he will probably be best known for writing silence he loved that idea uh, that dichotomy. He was never a person to follow traditional ways. As Varez said, I always looked for ways to expand my limits and reach beyond my limits. But Cage never thought like that. Cage just was an experiential kind of person. He would set up systems and he would just do processes. He never looked to over 
outdo himself or outdo himself. He was always looking for innovative ways to produce music and to produce art. So that differentiates them in that way. But in a sense, they're similar because they're both really experimentative in their thinking. As I said, I met Cage, um, and I met him through Betty Freeman. Uh, Betty Freeman was probably the most dynamic, curious, an interesting devotee of contemporary music and art in America. She was from Los Angeles. Now, interestingly, Cage was also a California product. And one of the things that Betty was interested in doing, not just promoting music, but she thought that California composers and West Coast musicians were basically underrepresented. And she did a lot of uh, work to help promote the careers of uh, composers from Los Angeles, from San Francisco, and from uh, the West Coast, the whole alternative to uh, the Eastern Coast domination of, of music, which basically the Eastern Coast dominates music in this country. Rock and roll, you might say, uh, is, uh, is West Coast, but uh, that might even be in doubt. Who knows? Anyway, she was a, a, a woman who used to hold soirees at her, her, her house in Beverly Hills, and she would invite once a month and invite composers and people in. And I met lots of people there. I got invited and uh, met lots of people there. But Cage had someone like that in his life, too. Uh, there was a woman uh, before Betty was doing her uh, astonishing work in Los Angeles and, and with composers. Um, there was a woman who was... Uh, doing woman uh, doing that type of stuff in New York and and uh, uh, Cage met her uh, met her she was actually married to someone else and he fell in love with her and sent her love letters and did all that type of thing but she helped not only Cage do his music but at the time Dada was extremely in, important in America the whole Dada movement which is, is like from the baby talk Dada it was this infantile kind of uh, ad-lib performance art and and uh well, like performance art it was just kind of ad-lib and and uh and stuff so i saw cage a couple of times he performed uh concerts with uh with nicholas sanimsky they did little talks and things like that cage would do read from his pieces uh Slonimsky would play the piano and talk about composers he'd met henry cowell and and people that they both knew and 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 trade stories and it was very interesting because uh, I, I saw Cage three times do that. I talked to him at one extensively at one, and then at Slonimsky's another time. But the, it was not that interesting uh, to hear a guy sit and read some abstract kind of prose poetry, disassociated things just alone sitting on the stage. It was not that entertaining. Of course, he was John Cage, so people came to see John Cage. Uh, and Betty, you know, you think that this guy had this all this type of fame and all this uh, exposure and stuff. He didn't make much money off of anything that he did. He was uh, Betty basically supported him the last years of his life, um, and she did that with other composers too, who who fell on hard times as they got older and and got ill and things like that. And she took care of all that stuff. She's a fantastic person. Uh, she's dead, unfortunately, but uh, and I don't know who's picked up the torch. Uh, for her from that time. But it was uh, was very weird because when you see Cage that way, I mean, people have expectations of him and, and they would show up at these uh, in galleries and he would be there with, he even did one with um, uh, uh, with Frank Zappa one time. Uh, but Slonimsky was the guy who was uh, did some performances with Zappa that was interesting. And um, 
And Slonimsky's were uh, interestingly came out better. Uh, Frank is not a not a, 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 a mediocre person in any way that you would ever think. He's a fantastic composer, and uh, and and a wonderful musician. But when you when you actually put down and start analyzing the works, and he starts presenting them, it was kind of tedious, and, uh, and a lot of people felt that way. So interesting, interesting because he's Frank Zappa, and you're seeing him trying to explain his stuff. And the same with John Cage. It's interesting to see the person because of their notoriety and their fame. But then when you look at what they do um, and they explain it, you, you wonder where, why, where, what's all the big mess about and what's all the big hype about. But they, they, they produce great stuff. Brian Fernieholz is another person like that, a composer, who, who his explanations are sometimes more interesting than his music. And the other way, it wasn't that way. Zappa's music is more interesting than his explanations. Slonimsky, not really a composer. I mean, he composed a few minor things, but, uh, but his, his stories were always wonderful. He could really tell a, a good story. Anyway, John, like I said, was born in Los Angeles, and uh, his father was an inventor, kind of a cool guy. He, he had developed these cosmological theories. So cosmology is the study of the universe, all the, 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 cosmology, the cosmos, right? And he developed this whole thing called the electrostatic field theory. And there's a lot of people who still subscribe to that and, and try to explain the, uh, the ideas of gravity through this electrostatic field uh, uh, thing. His mother was a journalist with the L.A. Times. And he graduated high school in 1928. And um, he uh, got piano lessons. Uh, earlier than that, he got some piano lessons from family members. An aunt, basically, is one that... Uh, that helped him and then later in his years she, they collaborated on some pieces together um, and he went to college he went to uh, Pomona College Claremont I think Nixon was an alum from that also but he dropped out after two years uh, and went uh, moved up to uh, work with uh, with uh, dancers he while he was at Pomona he, he could actually play piano quite well and he became an accompanist to the ballet groups there and the little practice groups and stuff like that and he got involved with poetry and, and some other stuff and, um, and then finally went up and then he went to Europe. Now the war was over. He's now off in Europe to discover himself and he was there for about 16 to 18 months and he worked in some jobs and he played a little piano and he uh, worked in theater, an improvisational theater. And he actually went and heard some concerts of Stravinsky and Hindemith and, they, and um, that changed his whole direction. And he said, I think I can write some music and I want to do art and music. He returned in 1931 and he went to Santa Monica. And uh, it, was, he, it was funny because it was kind of a, it sounds like a charlatan type of thing. I mean, he'd had only a few months in Europe, you know, speaking in, in, a, in a, as a lifetime, you know, 16 months is not that much. But he sold himself as this expert on European art and he gave these tours to wealthy people of of uh, things, exhibits that would come to the museums and traveling exhibits and things like that came around. And he was now this, this expert on European art because he had been to Europe and, and you know, people didn't travel like they travel now. Uh, but through this, because he did this, he met lots of artists, lots of local artists and art-related people, and he found uh, uh, an art teacher and finally he decided he was going to do music and, and try to do music. And um, in 1933, he's now living in Santa Monica, he sent some pieces to a composer, Henry Cowell. 
He was living up in uh, Mills College at the time. And I'll do a show on Cowell also. And Cowell suggested, he looked at the pieces, and I guess he thought they had some merit because he suggested that he contact Arnold Schoenberg. Now, we know Arnold Schoenberg is a developer of the 12-tone system, but Schoenberg was a really great teacher. Uh, uh, and his, his primary forte outside of music and developing his 12-tone system and that whole compositional serialism aspect uh, he was a fantastic teacher. He wrote, wrote books on harmony. He wrote books on music theory. He wrote tons, copiously, another composer who wrote quite a lot. And, um, but before he took off to go study with Schoenberg and go back to Europe, um, he said, uh, look, um, I think you should study with this other guy. Um, his name was Weiss. He was a student of, uh, of uh, Schoenberg. And... Um, they were both teaching at the new school, Whites, and Cowell had now moved to the new school, and he went out there and um, uh, attended the new school. Now, how did Cage make his living while he was in New York? This is an interesting thing. He got a job at the YMCA, which I assume he was staying there because he was either staying with people or staying at the YMCA. He didn't have a lot of money, and he was washing walls. Uh, so every day after people would come in and work out, he would come in and wash the walls down and clean up. He was, he was basically a janitor at the Brooklyn YMCA to earn money. Now, it, it seems strange, but we've had other things like that. I mean, Phil Glass, the composer now that everybody knows about and has a wonderful career, was a baggage handler uh, at the airport. So people have to do whatever they have to do to get by until their careers took off. Now, Schoenberg moved to America, was teaching at USC. Eventually, he went to uh, uh, UCLA also. But, and then he was forced retired, which was, to me, stupid. This is this plan where you get to a certain age and they force you out uh, of teaching. Here's a guy, great, uh, great teacher, great uh, curriculum, and, and producing great students, and including Leonard Stein, one of them. And, um, and yet he was uh, uh, kicked out. He couldn't, couldn't stay as a teacher. So while he was roaming around, let's go back to 1940 here. And uh, 40, he was up working in Seattle with this uh, 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 choreographer up there uh, named Bonnie Bird. And Bonnie Bird uh, was looking for some, uh, some, some kind of new way to, to do uh, dance. Uh, dance has always been ahead of music as, as an art form. So Cage invented this thing called the prepared piano. He started working on it in 1940, and it kind of came to fruition over a number of years. But I'm going to play some prepared piano pieces, and um, uh, so listen to them, and then we'll talk about what a prepared piano is and what that innovation is to music.
What is a prepared piano? That piece, by the way, is called Primitive by John Cage. It's written around 1943. And uh, he wrote lots of similar sounding pieces, but with a little bit different rhythm stuff. It kind of sounds like a gamelan, if anybody's ever heard of gamelan, which is an, an, an instrument, uh, an, an ensemble from Bali, Java, that area where uh, lots of bells and and things like that. But his music construction probably influenced at this time by Lou Harris because uh, Lou was very big into gamelan music and that whole, um, uh, what do you call orientalism. But what is a prepared piano? A prepared piano is you take a regular piano and you can use either an upright or a uh, grand piano and you attach uh, different things like clothespins and and wires and uh, screws and nails and things like that to the strings inside the piano. So when you play them, what you're kidding is kind of a, a, a different sound than the string. Now, you can use any number of strings. Usually in the lower ranges, these things work better. The higher ranges, they tend not to have that much effect. But the longer the string, the more area you have to play with. So you might attach a an eraser to a couple of strings so it would make that dull sound and it might attach a spring just to another one would have another sound. And then you write a piece using those things. Now, uh, using just those notes. Now, if you think about it and listen to the piece, there's really a very narrow range of notes being played here. There's, all, there's like 10 or 12 notes is all that's being played. But they've been altered, they're on the piano, so you can sit on the piano and whack away at these notes and come up with different rhythms and different uh, type of combinations of these notes together to, to create the piece. So I'll do a little bit of excerpt again from that same piece and you can listen to it that way. So you hear a modest use of forces. There's only 10, 12, maybe, maybe 16 notes, maybe, and they're not, uh, and they're put in different places on the piano to get the type of sound that he wanted. I mean, this was not just random, let's do it. I mean, he really thought this stuff through. And in, in fact, the first time somebody prepared a piano that I saw, it took him like six hours to do it, uh, to get the right sounds out of it. And uh, subsequently, now people can prepare a piano in like half an hour. So, you know, we learn. We do these things and we learn how to do them and, and what works. And there's no one preparation, even though Cage gives some instructions, they're not all that so accurate, like millimeters and sensors. You, you put it in this thing to the harmonic node and, and this other one at a, at a different place on the string where the harmonic node is stretched and the string is, and each piano has a little bit different lengths of strings. They're generally they're the same, but a grand piano string length is a lot different than an upright. So now the harp inside the pianos is not the same harp. And then they have spinet pianos. They have a, so there's no exact uh, placing of these things. But the concept behind it is what's important. So let's go on. So um, he, like I said, he studied with Cowell. We finally studied some with Cal and those people. And um, uh, uh, I'm going to take a little digression here because uh, one of the people that John met was a guy named Oscar Fishinger. And Oscar, I, I never met Oscar himself, but I did meet uh, his wife, Elfrida, who at the time was working with uh, UCLA and with a thing called the... Um, uh, 
of the Visual Music Alliance. I became a board member and helped uh, run this thing called the Visual Music Alliance when I was running, uh, uh, the help, helping run the Independent Composers Association down in Los Angeles. And um, I met uh, Alfreda, and she was, uh, he was an experimental, he, Oscar was a really brilliant guy. And, and we, we know Oscar Fischinger because if you take a look at that movie Fantasia, uh, the, the Disney, Fischinger was working in Germany. He got obviously come to America to escape Nazism and the, and the rising political problems in Germany. And, um, and he went to, met Disney. Disney at the time was hiring all types and types of people. I mean, he hired Salvador Dali. He hired uh, Prokofiev, Sergei Prokofiev. He hired uh, Rachmaninoff. He hired all these artists that were coming out of Europe uh, to do things with film. Uh, an interesting story about Dali, but I'll talk about that on some other show. But um, so uh, John uh, w was uh, working on this prepared piano and did some dance performances and stuff around, and he uh, met Oscar Fischinger. Now, Oscar was this animator, and if you take a look at Fantasia, the beginning, that whole Toccata and Fugue uh, of Bach that uh, he animated uh, with using things that were running around and arrows that were shooting and all this stuff in kind of choreographed to the music. So he, he was saying this is what a musical or a visual representation would be of this Toccata and Fugue. Now, the idea of this visual music alliance was that the the movie, uh, the, the visual aspect could be played without the music and you would know what the music was if you could follow what the guy was doing with the animation. Our minds don't work that way. It's a, it's a funny thing. It's, it's a noble idea. Um, but what the society did was it produced a bunch of... Uh, 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 experimental filmmakers, people doing film things much like Andalusian Dog that uh, uh, Salvador Dali did way back in the, in the 20s and 30s. And, uh, and the idea of, of is abstractness in film and, and those type of things. If you ever see the movie Pi, uh, the Aronofsky film, um, uh, very abstract. Well, it still is, has some kind of form. There's this abstraction going on. There's other filmmakers doing the same thing. Anyway, um, I did get to, I went to the house where he used to live, and I got to, she, in fact, Elfrida gave me uh, a use of, uh, of Oscar's light organ. He designed this light organ that you could play uh, like a musical instrument, but it didn't have a keyboard or anything like that. It was a different, different type of design. I used it in a couple of concerts down in Los Angeles. I'd like to get it back and put something up here, but I actually know how to make one, so I could probably make one if I wanted to. Anyway, it was an experimental film form. I met her, and it was nice. And got to see all the animation that he did for Fantasia. She had it all. It was done on pieces of glass. There must have been 100,000 of these things. Uh, I didn't see any, but probably 70 of them or 80 of them. But there they were, all this animation done. It was really something inspirational to see. So... He, uh, he met uh, uh, Fischinger and, and did those type of things. He also met Lou Harrison, as I mentioned, and, and was, uh, he was a Cowell student, Henry Cowell. Um, I'll do shows on all these people because they're important composers and they've influenced music. Uh, it was around 38. It must have been about that time. And uh, Cage was always working. He was working with Merce Cunningham, and, uh, the choreographer, and... Uh, like I said, dancers have always been ahead of musicians as far as their use of music. Abstract music and dance 
fit very well together because you can do things in dance that don't, it doesn't have to be Swan Lake. I mean, it's not ballet. Modern dance is a whole different aspect of human expression where you're kind of creating sculptures on the stage and, and, and creating uh, the different types of mu movement that are sometimes in sync and sometimes out of sync. So it's, it's trying to be like music in the sense of, of spontaneous not existing other than in our apprehension of it. You know, we see it and we put the whole piece together. You see one part, like, like you hear a note of music, doesn't put a piece together and that's all you can apprehend at one time is the notes. So you have to see the succession of notes to hear the piece. Dance is similar because you have to see the succession of movement to get an idea of where the, the choreographer or the dancer is taking the piece. So uh, he worked with him and, and um, he, he got a job up at Mills College. Lou was teaching up there. And, and, uh, but remember, now Cage has never been to a formal music school. He's never had, he's had semi-formal music lessons. Um, he, he, he dropped out of college and he basically bummed around and worked with dancers. So uh, I wouldn't say bum around, but I mean, he went, went around and worked with, 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 with dancers and he, he wasn't a trained person, yet his intellect was of such a level that people wanted him into schools and to work in the schools. So, um, you know, like I said, 40, he invented the prepared piano and, uh, and, and he also worked with uh, indeterminacy. Now, indeterminacy came because of his study of, of Buddhism and uh, um, this particular guy, a Tamil guy, uh, it was from, at the time, Ceylon, it's now called Sri Lanka, but it was uh, uh, I have to say this, Kumara Swami, Kumara Swami. And he was real influential back in the in the in the twenties and and thirties in this country, and he kind of brought uh, what we call Orientalism or Oriental mysticism into America as a name. We would today the politically correct why we can't say Oriental, we have to say Asian mysticism. But I mean, at the time it was called Orientalism, and uh, it's just a word. It doesn't have any pejorative con uh, connotations. It doesn't mean good or bad. In fact. Most Americans were infatuated with anything out of the out of Asia at that time. So um, and and actually Orientalism came from because this guy his name was Edward Said I think is how you pronounce it I think he was an Egyptian guy, but he uh, he uh, back in the 1800s he wrote this uh, this idea about this this whole body of knowledge that existed out in in Asia that the Europeans were instead of the, the little thing that happened at the at the World's Fairs were kind of interesting. People saw them, but they didn't attach to them. I mean, W.C. of course saw gamelan music and and wrote from that. So did Ravel. But Orientalism as a as an idea and the mystical East, you know, the the, the this this arcane knowledge that somehow people in other countries had and they were more in tune to the universe. And we still have that today. There are a lot of people who follow. Um, on, on what we would call unorthodox or non-orthodox uh, traditions, uh, hoping to find some kind of uh, secret arcane knowledge. Well, Cage was no exception. He he uh, uh, did it, and he was uh, very involved with it, and um, he, he was no exception in that sense. He, he fell for mysticism and uh, philosophical concepts behind it uh, uh, really strongly. And, and the person he was attracted to was this one guy called Ananda, 
Kumaraswamy. And um, like I said, he was from uh, what we call now Sri Lanka, who, of course, you know, is uh, Arthur C. Clarke lives on, uh, lived on Sri Lanka for the longest time. And uh, why did he fi find and get involved with all this stuff? Well, at the time, there was a group down in Los Angeles. It was all over the world, but it's called the Theosophists. Now, we had the Theosophists up here because we have the People's Temple, and we had um, uh, many people living up here who were involved with mysticism and Oriental Asian mysticism and philosophy. And uh, it was with Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti ended up living up in in uh, Ojai uh, for years and years and years and giving lectures up there. But he was considered the great guru. He was going to be the great new guru. And everybody flocked to him. He was down at the Philosophical the PRS, Philosophical Research Center down in Los Angeles. And there was a place up on the side of the hill up there at, at the end of Gaffey Drive, I think it was called, where it was a like a, a, a theological center they had up there. Kind of like the, uh, uh, the center they have there in Ojai. And, um, and he met uh, Krishnamurti and met all these people. But Krishnamurti, of course, the, the movement fell apart because Krishnamurti says, I disavow all movements and, and I don't want to be a guru and I don't want to uh, do anything. Jiddu Krishnamurti. If you read, a, read his writings, you'll be absolutely stunned at how perceptive this man was. Now, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a secret to it, you know, but we have Western philosophers who are equally profound uh, in a different way. Now, why does all this have anything to do with us up here? because all these people were associated with the Dunites out of Oceano. And uh, Cage was up here with the Dunites and uh, with the, the People's Temple there in, in uh, Halcyon and other places like that. So involved with all this is Jungian philosophy and Jungian psychology and Jungian concepts of archetypes and those type of things. Cage loved that stuff and fell into it. Now, who was a central figure in all this? This is like a mystery contest sort of thing. Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, and, and uh, wrote all the things about man and myth and the, the, the purpose of myth in, in human beings. Campbell knew Krishnamurti and knew Young, and he introduced Cage to these people. Also, Alan Watts, Allen Ginsberg, all these people. Of course, this was the 60s when, when Cage was certainly around with the era of the experimental drugs and things like that. Started actually earlier than that. Of course, he was involved with that movement. He'd been up to Ginsberg's. And he did whatever they're doing up there. So um, do we find any of the Indian philosophies, any of this stuff in his music? Yes, we do. He actually titled pieces on meditation and uh, things on dreams and, and, uh, and a lot of prepared piano pieces are based after these kind of mystical ideas. Now, I don't know if he ever thought that he could give somebody a mystical experience from hearing his music. And I've had, I've had kind of very strange experiences at concerts. I've had out-of-body type of experiences and loss of self-experiences and those type of things. And not because I'm taking drugs or anything, but because the music is is so interesting. Uh, we had uh, uh, so a group play up here, uh, Marty Walker, a, a, a good friend of mine, clarinetist, and, and um, came up with a, a friend of his, and they did a, did a set at Linnea's uh, in, in San Luis. And um, they, uh, it was almost psychedelic. I mean, people were, were saying, I felt stoned after the concert. And, and yeah, they produced music that actually disoriented you to a point where you were actually felt 
that you were taking drugs or something when and you weren't. You know, Paul Severson was at the concert and he he said, uh, "Yeah, well, I was really psychedelic. I I got all so got high from it." You know, so. Music does have this kind of power if you put it together the certain way. Cage knew that, and Cage worked with that. And he wrote a lot about the influence of music, almost as much as Plato in that sense. Not quite in the same way. He didn't politically put it together. It was all spiritual for Cage. Now, Cage lived through, he was about 30s uh, when World War II hit. Uh, he didn't go in the Army, didn't volunteer. Um, I don't know if he was drafted, not drafted. But he was a person who would be singularly unable to be successful in the military. He wasn't, he was just not capable of, of subjugating himself that way to anybody else's uh, demands. He was a very patriotic guy. He loved this country and he, he loved being in America. But he, was, he didn't consider himself that way. He would have been a disaster. And it couldn't have been appreciated anyway, whatever he was, uh, he was doing. So you meet people like that sometimes. They're just, they're just kind of in their own world, and they're, they're ephemeral in, in many ways. So in the spirit of John Cage, I'm going to take several pieces, including Cage talking, and I'm going to randomize them and put them together, and we'll hear what we get. One evening, when I was still living at Grand Street and Monroe, Isamu Noguchi came to visit me. There was nothing in the room, no furniture, no paintings. The floor was covered wall to wall with cocoa matting. The windows had no curtains, no drapes. Isamu Noguchi said an old shoe would look beautiful in this room. You probably know the one about the two monks, but I'll tell it anyway. They were walking along one day when they came to a stream where a young lady was waiting, hoping that someone would help her across. Without hesitating, one of the monks picked her up and carried her across, putting her down safely on the other side. Two monks continued walking along, and after some time, the second one, unable to restrain himself, said to the first, You know we're not allowed to touch women. Why did you carry that woman across the stream? The first monk replied, Put her down. I did two hours ago. What, 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 what? Once, when several of us were driving up to Boston, we stopped at a roadside restaurant for lunch. 
there was a table near a corner window where we could all look out and see a pond. People were swimming and diving. There were special arrangements for sliding into the water. Inside the restaurant was a jukebox. Somebody put a dime in. Well, I will have to say, it's almost impossible to cover the scope of a composer like John Cage in one hour. But we gave it a good shot, and at least it's an introduction. So go out and buy his music, listen to his music, and read what he wrote. You'll be forever uh, amazed at the power and the depth of this man. This is Ted Peterson. This is Musical Explorations. Next week, what are we going to look at next week? Probably Igor Stravinsky, but maybe somebody else.